What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. November 13, 1977. Los Angeles, California. Young students Dolores and Sonia were on their way home from a day out shopping when two police officers stopped them for questioning. However, it was just a clever ruse, and the supposed police officers were actually sadistic killers. They fell victim to two men who knew no compassion, no remorse, no empathy. It is beyond depraved. 14-year-old Sonia and 12-year-old Dolores were abducted, held captive for five days, repeatedly raped, and finally strangled. Their killers were two cousins, Angelo Bono and Kenneth Bianchi. You got the smooth-talking, sharp, glib Bianchi, and then you've got the street-con-wise, smart predator in Bono. That's a pretty dangerous combination. The partners in crime went on a killing spree, murdering 10 young women in just four months. Many were dumped on hillsides across LA, locations that would lend the killers their infamous moniker. These two were not gonna stop until they were caught. This had a really devastating effect on the lives of women in Los Angeles. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Angelo Bono and Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Stranglers. The story of these two killers begins in Rochester, New York. Angelo Bono was the oldest of two and was born on October 5, 1934. He and his sister were born into an Italian-American family. At the age of five, his parents divorced, and in 1939, his mother took her two children west to Glendale, California. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel and criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley talk about Bono's troubled upbringing. You could say that Bono was a troubled child. He had a very strange relationship with his mother, whom he uh, constantly accused of being a whore. Now, he doesn't speak very highly of his mother at all. His mother would go and visit men and he would have to wait outside. So here's an individual who's got very fixed ideas about who women are and how they should behave and what's acceptable for women and what isn't. And I think that feeds into the rationale behind the future offending. At 16, Bono dropped out of high school and turned to a life of crime. As a teenager, Bono was somebody who regularly broke the rules. He would steal things, he would joyride in cars, he would hang around with gangs. This is somebody who just did not think the rules applied to him. And when you look at who his role models are, they were criminals. So he's starting off on a very dangerous path. In 1951, while Bono was serving time in youth custody for stealing cars, his adoptive cousin, Kenneth Bianchi, was born on May 22nd. He also had a troubled start in life. Kenneth Bianchi, born, fun enough, also in Rochester, New York, just like Bueno. But Bianchi's mother was a sex worker. 
and he was very swiftly put up for adoption as a three-month-old infant. And he was adopted by Buono's mother's sister. He's adopted by Francis and Nicholas. Now, Francis absolutely doted on him, but she took this to a, an absolute extreme, and she had this paranoia that there was something wrong with Kenneth, and she took him to see the doctor on multiple occasions when there turned out to be absolutely nothing wrong with him. And I think this kind of smothering can be just as damaging as neglect. There was something quite toxic going on here. The young Bianchi was showing unsettling behavioral patterns. He was described by his adopted mother as a compulsive liar from a very, very early age. He was difficult to control. And then his father dies when he's a teenager. So the male role model is removed, and he is, to some extent, left swinging in the breeze. He was only 14 years old. But Bianchi's mother had big plans for her sheltered son. At the funeral, she made Bianchi wear his father's shoes. They were too big, and he walked clumsily. But they were a symbol of who he had to become, the man of the house. They were an Italian Catholic family with some very rigid ideas about family and about the role of men and the role of women. So we're seeing some, some quite strong values coming through in his childhood, and they're values that he draws on in an incredibly dysfunctional way. Retired LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan remembers. His mother recognized that he had a lot of psychiatric issues and problems. And she wouldn't let him date girls. She watched over him very, very closely. Bianchi graduated from high school and at 18 married his sweetheart, Brenda. But his insecurities about her forging her own career as a nurse caused tension in the marriage. Bianchi saw women as something to be possessed. They could be his and his alone. The marriage to Brenda fell apart very quickly. He was only 18. He accused her of being unfaithful. It played to his sense that any woman he had to possess, he had to control completely. After a few months, the couple divorced. Bianchi then planned a career as a police officer. In 1970, he enrolled in college to study police science and psychology. He was absolutely obsessed with becoming a police officer. He applied to join the police several times and failed at doing that. This was a fixation for him throughout his life. I think failing was one of the factors in the background of who he became. He wants that legitimate control. He wants that legitimate power. And if he can't get it legitimately, he's gonna get it by some other means. Bianchi didn't land his dream job as a police officer, so he found work as a security guard. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, his cousin Angelo Bono was a career car thief. By this point in 1970, the 36-year-old had been married and divorced twice and fathered eight children with three different women. A lot of women said that he had a very sexual, strong feeling about him. But it was a scary, frightening kind of thing. It was kind of a predator kind of a thing. And he had been through a whole lot of women. He was very sexually active. And he was proud of that reputation. Buono's attitude to women and to the women he married was abusive. There can be no doubt about that. And each of them described his abusiveness. 
his drama threatened with a gun, persistently kicked, brutalized. He was very aggressive sexually, even with young, young girls. There was something in Bueno which saw women as objects, a man who saw women as something of his right. Before long, the two cousins, who barely knew each other, would discover they shared the same intense loathing of women. Bono and Bianchi would move in together and become collaborators, murderous collaborators. 1975, Glendale, California. 41-year-old Angelo Bono has served three short prison terms for stealing cars. He also had a long, dark history of domestic abuse, raping and beating former wives and girlfriends. But now it seemed Bono wanted to settle down and walk the straight and narrow. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel and retired LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan explain. Although he wasn't particularly well-educated, he was quite smart. He was capable of running a business. Indeed, he started his own business, Auto Upholstery. It was very successful. Matter of fact, the rumor is he did one of Frank Sinatra's cars. He also considered himself a mafia kind of guy. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley suggests that at home and at work, Bono was meticulous to the extreme. Bruno was obsessed with cleanliness. He would bleach his house several times a week. He was able to change the brakes on a car without getting dirty. Um, when you see people who are obsessed with cleanliness, it's about feeling that everything is within your control. Meanwhile, 2,500 miles away in Rochester, New York, Bono's cousin, Ken Bianchi, had been fired from his job as a security guard for stealing jewelry at the department store where he worked. In January 1976, Bianchi's family came up with a plan to temper the wayward 24-year-old. Their mothers are sisters, and they think it's a good idea for these two to live together. And I think it is part of those, this kind of Italian Mediterranean family values, you know, that, that if you're part of a family, then you're always welcome. You should always look out for one another. Bono was doing the family a favor, taking him in. This is something he didn't really want to do. This is a guy who lives alone. And to take in a border was something that, uh, you know, he wasn't happy with. Former Deputy Attorney General Michael Nash has more. Bianchi apparently looked up to Angelo Bono, his older cousin, kind of admired the, the tough guy image that he projected. Again, Bianchi tried for a career in the police, this time with the LAPD. But he once again failed his exams. In the end... Bianchi resorted to lies to get a respectable job. He had phony certificates made up showing that he was a graduate of Columbia University and had a degree in psychiatry and he was actually a psychologist. A psychologist in Los Angeles actually hired this guy and he was seeing his patients. He had a gift of really selling himself, and he did. He was a sociopath, and he was a pathological liar. In June 1976, Bianchi made it into the LAPD reserves as an unpaid volunteer. He found himself a desk job to pay the bills. While working there, he met a new girlfriend. They moved in together. By now, the cousins had a real rapport. Bianchi looked up to the older Bono, and was easily convinced by him to get involved with 
establishing themselves as pimps. He and Buono set up what only could be described as an agency for prostitutes. They target two young women whom they set up to work for them, to make them money as sex workers. It was a marriage made in hell. I mean, here you've got a sexual predator and a sociopath. Bianchi wants to be like his cousin Angelo. Say so he looks up to him, he's older. He was excited that it's a recipe for madness. But running sex workers wasn't enough for them. To satisfy their own sexual cravings, they prowled the streets using a tactic inspired by an infamous criminal from the 1940s. When Buono was an adolescent, he very much looked up to career criminals and one particular criminal, a serial rapist called Chessman, who he became very interested in, had actually used a police ruse in order to target his victims. I think Buono saw something there that lodged in his mind and that would later come out in his offending. Angelo Bono had a security badge that belonged to his stepfather. And they used that to portray themselves as undercover police officers. They started using the badge to get free sex from prostitutes. They liked the fact that they could get girls back to their house and have them have sex with them, then play a badge on them and tell them that, hey, don't tell anybody we did this or you'll be in trouble. But the excitement of duping women for free casual sex soon wore off. Bono and Bianchi were twisted and they wanted to up the stakes. They both agreed, why don't we try choking somebody to death while we're having an orgasm? That would be something I'd like to do. That was Bono's thing. And of course, whatever Bono said, Bianchi went along with. It's what the psychologists call folie deux. One adds depth to the other. One eggs the other one on. One's the sorcerer and the other one's the apprentice. And then suddenly they become partners in crime. 11 p.m., October 17th, 1977. Bono and Bianchi were cruising one of Hollywood's most famous streets, Sunset Boulevard. And they had their fake police badges at the ready. Bianchi had a four-door sedan that could resemble a police car at night. I had no siren or lights, but it had the same color, dark blue and a white top. They used that car in all the stops and pullovers that they made. They spotted 19-year-old Yolanda Washington. She was a mum, she was struggling to make ends meet. She became involved in sex work and they picked her up, claiming to be police officers. Got her in a car under the pretense of who they were and Bianchi strangled her in the backseat. And that's where it started. They dumped Yolanda's body on Forest Lawn Drive, not far from Glendale. She was discovered early the next morning. She had a three-year-old child, and she's treated as a piece of garbage. From there, it just kind of accelerated. They started discussing what they were going to do. Let's take them back to the house. If we take them back to the house, then we can play games with them. And that's exactly what they did. Barely two weeks later, on the night of October 30th, Bono and Bianchi were roaming the streets once again as they stalked Sunset Boulevard. A young girl caught their attention. Judy Miller was picked up on Sunset Boulevard near a hot dog stand. 
Judy was 15 years old, so a few years younger than Yolanda Washington. And she's been described as a runaway, but she's a child. She's incredibly vulnerable. And I think they recognize that and they prey upon that vulnerability again. The killers lured Judy into their car under the pretense of hiring her for sex. Once inside, they pulled out their fake badges. She was trapped, and this time, Bono and Bianchi had even more elaborate, terrible plans. They took her to Bono's auto upholstery shop, where she was systematically raped. This change in offending is really significant for me because when you're taking your victims to somewhere that's private, an environment over which you have control, this suggests that you want to escalate your offending. You want to spend more time with your victims. You want to harm them more. Using a ligature placed around her neck, they strangled 15-year-old Judy. They dumped her naked body in bushes off a quiet residential street in the neighborhood of La Crescenta. When she was found the next day, detectives noted the lack of drag marks on her body. That gave us a kind of an indication that there might have been two guys, because if you have a dead body and you're lugging it around, you want to put a place here and place there, it's very difficult. And if you do that, you usually will have leave marks on the body if you're dragging the heels. But she was placed in an area, and that's where her body was found. There was a fiber on her eyelid that was visible, uh, and obviously she was blindfolded, which left the fiber. Despite the police's hunch that there might be two killers working together, there was little else left at the crime scene in the way of clues to help them identify the murders. Bono and Bianchi felt unstoppable, and on November 5th, they decided to target a different type of victim. Now you have a complete change of pace. It wasn't only directed at sex workers. Lisa Caslin was a perfectly ordinary, upright girl, 21. She was a dancer, quite a good career, with an extraordinary group called the LA Knockers. Lisa Caston was walking to her apartment and police ruse was used with her. She was brought back to Bono's shop, you know, raped and murdered, and her body was found in the bushes off a street in Glendale. Now, Bono and Bianchi had killed three young women. They were reveling in their success and growing in their confidence. They were hitting their stride. They would discuss it, according to Kenneth Bianchi. They would sit down, well, what do you want to do tonight? Let's try Hollywood again. Let's pick up another whore in Hollywood. They took him to Bono's upholstery shop and sexually assaulted him, strangled him, took their nude body and threw them in the hillside around the city of Los Angeles. It was a game. The atrocities continued. Four days later on November 9th, 28-year-old actress and model Jane King was stopped at a Hollywood bus bench. She was taken to Bono's workshop, where she was raped, strangled, then dumped next to the freeway in Glendale. The killer cousins had claimed four victims in nearly as many weeks. It was the most extraordinary spree. And I think one of the things that made them, in the end, terrify Los Angeles, there was no pattern. They literally, like lightning strikes, they had an appetite. And that appetite knew no bounds. 
Bono and Bianchi's killing spree had barely begun. Soon, they'd work out depraved methods of torture, and even schoolchildren would be targeted. Killer cousins 43-year-old Angelo Bono and 26-year-old LAPD reservist Ken Bianchi had raped and strangled four women after kidnapping them off the streets of Hollywood. On Sunday, November 13th, they set their sights on two children. Sonia Johnson and Dolores Cepeda were spotted getting on a bus after a Sunday afternoon spent shopping. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel describes the scene. They get off the bus. Almost certainly. They're impressionable, they're 12 and 14. Two men stop them, they say they're police officers, they get them into the car, they take them back to Bono's. I mean, it is unimaginable. This time, the victims were imprisoned and held captive in Bono's home. The two schoolgirls were gagged and bound, then repeatedly raped over five days. What they must have subjected them to and what those girls must have felt is literally horrifying. Depravity is too good a word for it. It is utter depravity. At the end of their torture, the girls were strangled. The killers dumped their bodies four miles from Bono's home on a hillside near the famous LA Dodgers stadium. Former Deputy Attorney General Michael Nash recalls more. It's a street that Bono referred to and uh, since he had grown up in the area as the cow patch, and apparently their bodies were just thrown down the hill. It is behavior of the most disgraceful because it's inhuman. It is animalistic. Despite raping and killing six women and girls in barely a month, it wasn't nearly enough for Bianchi and Bono. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the duo was getting bored. They're varying their offending at this point in time, and offenders will do this because they will get bored. They will want to mix things up. They will want to make things interesting. Their victims were no longer just randomly picked off the streets. On November 20th, two days after their last killing, Bianchi telephoned 20-year-old art student Christina Weckler. Retired LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan explains what happened next. Christina Weckler had met Kenny Bianchi. They lived near each other. He succeeded in getting her out of her apartment on a roost that he was now a L.A. police officer, and her car was involved in an accident. Why the poor girl went, I don't know, but that was it. They abducted her, took her back to Bono's house. Once at Bono's home, the killers devised new and monstrous ways to cause suffering. They use a more elaborate method of killing her. Not simple manual strangulation, but they put a plastic bag over her head and put a gas pipe into it and effectively suffocate her. The killers also injected Christina's arms and neck with air and cleaning solutions, trying to induce a fatal embolism. There was a mark on her neck where they put cleaning fluid in her neck with the syringe. 
This is incredibly sadistic. It's incredibly drawn out. It's an escalation in their offending. They're enjoying the process of watching their victims die, of having that ultimate power and control over their life and death. And this is something that's only going to get worse. Then they dumped Christina's body on another remote hillside in Highland Park, several miles from Bono's Glendale home. It was a Sunday. I was notified at home. They said, we got a dead girl out here, and then it's definitely a murder victim. So I went out, did my usual crime scene investigation, and I noted the ligature marks on the hands and on the ankles. Detectives also noticed that the bodies continued to be placed and not dragged at each location. They were convinced they had more than one killer on their hands. We had put a lot of uniformed policemen in the area of Northeast Los Angeles looking for two suspects or one suspect as a serial murderer. So we were focusing in the area where the girls were originally abducted. I think that information got out somehow through the media. So what did Bianchi and Bono do? They drove all the way out to the valley to look for their next victim, 25 miles away. On November 28th, eight days after their last killing, Bianchi and Bono were cruising the streets of the San Fernando Valley. They spotted 18-year-old business student Lauren Wagner driving home. They uh, followed her, and she parked right across the street from where she lived. They stopped her, pretended they were police officers, and said they would have to take her in a car, and she resisted. She kind of vocally resisted. And they got her in a car and took her to Bono's house. Lauren was bound to a chair and gagged in Bono's home. This time, the cousins thought they'd experiment with electricity. They took wires, plugged them into the wall, kind of pulled the wires apart and taped the wire to the girl's hand and then plugged it in to electrocute her. There were burn marks in her hands from the wires. They discarded Lauren's body once again on one of the city's hillsides. Her parents had noticed their daughter's absence and were concerned when they found her abandoned car with the keys left in the ignition. And this was something that was out of the ordinary. She wouldn't normally do that. So immediately they knew that something was wrong. They knew something was amiss. So they contacted the local police department. She was discovered the next day. Her body was found once again on the side of a hill on a little street in the Glendale, L.A. area. And she was lying there naked as the others with ants crawling all over her body. Upon seeing her, we knew right away that she and Christina Weckler were killed by the same people. Both had very similar ligature marks on the body, around the neck and one on each wrist and one on each ankle. We began referring to that as five-point ligatures. Forensic investigators also found a small fiber stuck to the adhesive left by the tape that had been used to attach the electrical wires to Lauren's hand. Detective Bob Grogan went to her parents' home to break the devastating news about their daughter. But word of an eighth strangling victim had gotten out, which meant the L.A. press were already one step ahead. On the street where the Wagners lived was all the media in Los Angeles trying to interview Mr. and Mrs. Wagner. I hadn't even notified them. And they were running around with their microphones looking for an interview. 
And I ordered uh, the uniformed police to move him off the street and get him out of there. If they turned this into a circus, and this was far from a circus. The media now had a name for the serial murderer, the Hillside Strangler. But a neighbor had some important information for the police, which confirmed their earlier suspicions. She came out and saw two guys putting a girl in a car. That was the first time we actually had visible proof that there were two suspects. Couldn't identify them, but two were seen. With the killings making daily headlines in L.A., the police were now under pressure to step up the investigation. After the murder of Lauren Wagner, the detectives, we got together and said, we got a serial murder, we got a big problem, big problem. The chief wanted a task force. The media wanted a task force. So we got a task force. We got 100 policemen. Meanwhile, Bono and Bianchi were planning their next killing. And yet another change of tactic. They enjoyed the feelings of power and control that killing gave them, um, but they didn't want to have to go to the effort of going out. They wanted to make it easier for themselves. And going out actually was quite a risky thing at this time because this was a ruse that they'd used several times. So it was a combination of awareness of risk and laziness on their part. Bianchi has found a flat, another apartment in the block he lives in, which is vacant. On December 13th, Bianchi called an escort service posing as a client. 17-year-old Kimberly Martin was sent to an empty apartment. As soon as the door was open, she knew she had made a mistake. Bono and Bianchi were there and a struggle broke out. She had quite a severe head injury, almost as if she'd been bashed against a wall. So what I see in this case is an individual who knew that they were in danger and actually fought tooth and nail for their life. And I think that's testament to the strength of character of this individual. Bono and Bianchi took Kimberly back to Bono's workshop. After sexually assaulting and strangling her, the killers planned a final flourish to taunt the city. Her body was deposited on the side of a hill, kind of overlooking the city of Los Angeles. And her body was kind of displayed like this. And she actually came to symbolize the hillside strangler where she was thrown was kind of a way for these guys to thumb their nose at the world. And the media jumped on that, oh, the hillside strangler strikes again. So it was a panic situation in the city of L.A., no question about it. The Hillside Stranglers had now claimed nine innocent lives. Bono and Bianchi sat back and relished how their murders had become one of the biggest news stories ever in Los Angeles. Now the LAPD was under pressure to catch the killers before they struck again. December 1977, Los Angeles. Serial killer cousins, 43-year-old Angelo Bono and 26-year-old Kenneth Bianchi, had made a sport of raping, torturing, and killing five women and four girls. As the crimes were making headlines nearly every day, fear was consuming the city. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel describes the feeling in the air at the time. It created an utter panic. If you were young and a young woman in Los Angeles at that time, I think you would have been frightened. 
anybody would have been. Bianchi was enjoying the notoriety generated by the murders. Still a member of the LAPD reserves, he went on ride-alongs with the police and was on patrol with a local sergeant just two days after Kimberly Martin's killing. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and retired LAPD homicide detective Sergeant Bob Grogan say that Bianchi was trying to get information from the inside. He was asking questions about this murder and he was wanting to see the the dump site. So he was trying to find out what the police knew, essentially. He was trying to get some information. And the sergeant said, hey, I work uniform. I I don't know anything about that. So he was brazen enough to come out and make that kind of a statement. He told many people, I could be the hillside strangler. It didn't bother him, but you got to remember, you're dealing with a pathological liar, so he could say anything at any given moment. The two murderers decided to lay low for a couple of months. But on February 16, 1978, they couldn't resist 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hutspeth. She walked into Bono's shop to get a postery worker in her car. Big mistake. The predator of predators she's talking to and doesn't know this. Next thing you know, she's victim 10. They put her body in the trunk of her Datsun, her orange Datsun car, and they drive it to a higher area of Los Angeles. The car with her body in it was pushed off of Los Angeles Crest Highway, where she was found. By this point, the deadly duo's relationship was starting to splinter. The status that Bianchi was enjoying as a serial killer seemed to be going to his head. Kenny Bianchi has got to the point where he's kind of got bone or worried because he's bragging about these murders now. Hey, I went a ride along with the police department. Bono couldn't believe that. So there was a falling out. Bono threw him out of the house. He's out. I don't want to see you ever again. The killers decided to go their separate ways. That same month, Bianchi settled down to become a father when his girlfriend gave birth to their son. Now you have one of those wonderful contradictions. You have a superficially doting father who has evil intent, who presents, to use the contemporary phrase, as an upright member of the community, and yet is anything but. In May 1978, Bianchi's girlfriend left him and moved to Bellingham in Washington State. Desperate to stay with his son, Bianchi followed and found a job as a security guard. We've had this epidemic of killing, and it stops. But the trouble is, Bianchi can't stop. It has become too addictive. On January 11, 1979, Bianchi offered to pay two university students 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder $100 to house-sit one of the properties he was guarding. It's unclear exactly how Bianchi forced these two down the stairs into the basement, but there's no doubt that he did. He also put a noose around their necks and then strangled them. Kills the two girls. And he does it on his own. He does it poorly. He masturbated on one of the victims. And he couldn't get it on, couldn't function. He's now acting alone. He doesn't have the street-smart, con-wise Angelo Bono as a partner. The next day, January 12th, 
Authorities found Karen's car nearby with the bodies hidden in the trunk. Bianchi's employer told police where to find him, and he was arrested. He claims that the killing wasn't done by him, but done by his second personality, Steve Walker. So he's claiming that he has another individual in his head who's telling him to do particular things. When the police in Bellingham realized their suspect had a California driver's license, they contacted the LAPD. Detectives there noticed something interesting on Bianchi's license. Whenever you moved in California, you had a right on the back of your driver's license, your new address. Bianchi diligently did that. He put his address when he moved, which was on the same street that Christina Weckler lived on. That's a pretty strong connection. You got a guy who just killed two girls in Bellingham who used to live next door to a girl in Los Angeles who got killed? That in itself is a strong connection. Doesn't prove anything, but it makes it worthwhile to go talk to that guy. Now, there's a lot of things happening at that time. Bianchi is claiming to be a dual personality, and he's decided that this is going to be my defense. So one of America's leading criminal psychiatrists was sent to test Bianchi's alter ego, Steve, who allegedly appeared when he was under hypnosis. Dr. Martin Orm examined Kenneth Bianchi and had some techniques and tricks that he used and came to us and said, this guy's a complete fraud. With his lies now exposed, Bianchi wasted no time in revealing his cousin as his partner. He says there's another person with him on the murders, and it's his cousin, Angelo. And it's the first we heard of Angelo. This is incredibly revealing because there's no sense of loyalty whatsoever here. He's got what he wanted out of Bueno, so he just casts him aside and places the blame squarely on him. In order to get him to give us enough information so we can go down and arrest Mr. Bono, we have to make a deal. The deal is that he won't get the death penalty in the state of Washington and that he will testify truthfully in Los Angeles on a trial, if and when we have a trial. With Bono now in the picture, forensic teams searched his home and workshop. Astonishingly, they could not find a single fingerprint because of his obsessive cleanliness. However, they did find some evidence. They discovered the white polyester fiber on Judy Miller's eyelid matched upholstery material in Bono's workshop. They also found forensic evidence which placed another victim in his home. In the chair in the living room where we've learned from Bianchi where the victims were originally placed, a fiber was found down inside the chair. And that fiber was connected to a fiber that was found in Lauren Wagner's fingers. That's pretty positive evidence that this girl was in Bono's house. And that fiber evidence was extremely important evidence in this case. As Bianchi had already pleaded guilty to seven counts of murder as part of his deal, he didn't face a trial. His cousin Angelo Bono appeared in court on November 16, 1981. At the time, it was the longest trial in U.S. criminal history with Michael Nash, the deputy attorney general, prosecuting. The jury selection alone took almost four months. And then on top of that, Kenneth Bianchi was on the witness stand for about six months. The problem was that he changed his mind about everything. He did everything possible to sabotage that case against Angelo Bono. But the ploy failed 
after a mammoth trial lasting more than two years. In November 1983, Angelo Bono was found guilty of nine counts of murder. He was acquitted on the 10th count, that of Yolanda Washington, as it was accepted that he had been driving the car while Bianchi strangled her in the back. Both cousins were later sentenced to life in prison. Someone said, so how come you're, you're not celebrating? And I said, you have all these dead girls. They had family and friends who are forever scarred by all this. This is tragedy. But at least these brutal beasts could no longer haunt the L.A. streets. In September 2002, Bono dies at the age of 67 in jail. And Bianchi remained in jail in Washington state. They're not the first serial killers and they're not the last, but they were two of the worst human beings who've ever walked the face of the earth. They are among the most horrifying killers you could encounter because the rape, torture, and in the end, killing of utterly innocent young women for nothing but their own pleasure and their own gratification is unimaginably evil. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Beth Parks, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregin. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. On the next episode of What Makes a Killer. February 24th, 1986. Police in Talladega, Alabama force entry into the home of 24-year-old Sherry Weathers. The deaf mother of two hadn't showed up at school for nearly a week. And the reason soon became clear. Sherry and her two young children had been strangled and piled on top of each other in the shape of a cross. The utter callousness of it, of not only killing them, strangling them, but then posing them to be discovered. It's a, an act of a vile human being. When you see something like that, you can't help but, but think about your own child. This could happen to my child, too. The killer was 31-year-old artist Daniel Siebert, and his macabre masterpiece was far from complete. Two more bodies would soon be discovered, but the police had no idea where to find him.